Uh, we do thank you for all the musical reminders this morning, all the things, all the truths that have been shared with us. And I pray, Lord, we would take those things to heart. But now I pray as we go through your word that you would help me to be clear, to be faithful, to handle it well. And I just pray, Lord, you give us ears to hear, give us a heart that can understand, give us minds that can make our way through this, Father. And ultimately, we pray for your Holy Spirit's power to change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, I noticed, uh, I was reading an article, and there was a line in the article that said that uh, people are no longer asking if Christianity is true. What they're asking today is whether or not Christianity is good. And I thought that's a terrific summary of where our cultural conversation currently is. The questioning of whether or not the Christian faith is a a net positive, a good for a society to embrace. Now, this question, of course, did not pop up overnight. Uh, Over the last few generations, uh, all manner of disinformation, uh, all manner of uh, suggestions have been made to the negative about the Christian faith. And it has ranged everywhere from outright lies to uh, subtle neglect or uh, negative stereotypes. Uh, honestly, it's very similar to what the early church faced. Uh, lies and innuendo and stereotypes that came when the church began to spread uh, across the Middle East and Europe. One of the biggest stereotypes of the late 20th century and now into the first, uh, 21st century is that a Christian cannot be a scientist and a scientist cannot be a Christian. Now, it's not typically put that way. But it clearly, and I remember from my high school science classes, it was clearly implied that if you are a person of faith, or if you follow a religion, you are likely to impede, slow down, or stop scientific progress, or social progress. And the reality is, that couldn't be further from the truth. So you heard the text here is Psalm 33, and we're in a series talking about men and women that God has used. And I want to talk to you this morning about a man by the name of Johannes Kepler. Now, Johannes Kepler is probably not a name you've heard since high school, or at least since college science class. Kepler was a big part of what is now known as the scientific revolution. This happened in the 16th and 17th century. And it was considered a radical shift in scientific thought. Now, what is not normally mentioned in science class is that there is a hand-in-hand relationship between the Protestant Reformation and the scientific revolution. The Protestant Reformation went first, and then behind it came the scientific revolution. You see, there's a, a, a connection between the sudden scientific progress in Europe and the sudden recovery of gospel preaching. And Kepler was a part of both. Psalm 33 is an invitation to exuberant worship, to call us to express worship. Now, you've heard me say before, the Psalms are not a haphazard book. This was not a book where poems were placed in random arrangement. In fact, there is structure to the book of Psalms, and there is even a story to be told. 
The context here then is just before this psalm, Psalm 32, we have a psalm that is all about God's forgiveness, all about his mercy, his compassion. After this psalm, we have a psalm about how God blesses his people. And so in between those two things, his mercy and compassion, how he blesses and cares for his people, we have a psalm that invites us to worship this great and amazing God. And so we have three points for you this morning. Number one, number one, we are commanded to the art of worship. We are commanded to the art of worship. Notice in verse one, it says rejoice in the Lord. It is in every sense a command. But we're given two explanations. The first is this. Oh, you who are righteous. To simply put, the command to worship is given to those who believe God. Now, not believe in God, but those who believe God. You're to talk him up. If you want to think about it this way, if you believe this morning with all of your heart, that God is never going to leave you nor forsake you, the appropriate response is to talk about him at the dinner table. If you this morning believe with all of your heart that God is going to raise you up from the dead on the last day, the proper response is to talk about him as you are on your way to your vacation destination. You are to talk him up. You are to rejoice in the Lord. But note the next phrase, for praise is comely or beautiful for the upright. This is where I get the idea of the fact that worship is art. This rejoicing is a painting of something beautiful. So whether or not you are on tune this morning, your worship is painting the Mona Lisa. It is writing a hit song. It is coming up with the newest fashion trends. Now we see the idea more fully in verse 3. So sing unto him a new song. The idea is fresh. You can think of, uh, of fresh bread. So come up with fresh songs. We're told that we are to do it with skill, to make sure that we are using our skills in this worship. And then we're told that we are to do it with loudness. So it's not that you have to be a painter or a musician or a fashion designer. All you have to do is be someone who believes God. And in response, you desire to worship him with freshness and skill and with excitement. All you have to do is believe God. And believe him when he says things like salvation is by faith in Christ alone. And then respond by lifting up his name. But I also want to point something else out. This phrase, it is beautiful for the upright. Which means no amount of skillful piano playing can be a substitute for believing God. No uh, amount of freshness in your rap or in your poems or in a movie or in a book. No amount of freshness is a substitute for believing God. Loudness, enthusiasm are not a substitute for believing God. It is beautiful for the upright. Now, Kepler was a man who spent most of his life studying the, the universe. And every time he would come away with a word of praise to God. Now, many times he would simply write these words of praise, this, these inspirational moments down in a journal. 
but often they would make his way into his scientific work. Now, the thing he's most famous for is the laws of planetary motion. And immediately, some of you just went to sleep. But just to make it relevant to you, you have to understand that his discovery of the laws of planetary motion made, for example, the SpaceX rocket be able to launch as it did several weeks ago. His discoveries are responsible for your cell phone, your satellite TV, your FaceTime, your Instagram. None of it possible without a man who figured out the stability through math, figured out the stability of the universe all the way back in 1596. In fact, his mathematical formulas are responsible for a great number of medical devices that you would find in your local hospital because of his work with lenses and mirrors. He's also considered the man who came up with the idea of grants for college. He's the first guy to come up with the idea of Patreon, so wealthy people paying for research. So if you sell anything like uh, if you sell anything on a site like Etsy, think Kepler. His work was often full of praises to God. In fact, his very first work that he published was so full of both mathematical formulas and expressions of praise, it was mailed back to him and told him he better tone it down if he wants to be taken seriously. Now, the reason he was full of worship, because at a young man, he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believed that gospel. And he did it at a time when hearing it and believing it would have brought persecution. You see, the Protestant Reformation may have brought back gospel preaching, but it also brought a great deal of conflict. But that never mattered to Kepler, because as a young man, he grew up hoping that he would get to be a pastor who would be able to preach the gospel wherever God would send him. Except he made it to seminary. And there, his genius with numbers could not be ignored. And he was greatly encouraged to go and be a professor of mathematics and astronomy, which he eventually did at age 23. And a year later, he published his first scientific work called The Mystery of the Cosmos, which he closed with a magnificent hymn of praise to God. Number two this morning, not only are we commanded to the art of worship, number two, we are called to awe, A-W-E, and wonder. We are called to awe and wonder. Come to verses four and five. We are given a statement, for the word of the Lord is right, and all of his works are done in truth. And then we're told in verse 5, he loveth righteousness and judgment. So he's saying God speaks what is right and true, and God loves what is right and true. And the evidence that you are to look at is all of creation. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. We're invited, first of all, to set our gaze above us. Everything you see above us was created by his word. To look at the stars and know that the universe came about by the breath of his mouth. Then we're told to go to the ocean. How many of you love the ocean? Go to the ocean is the idea here. Stand on the shore and see how far, see if you can see the other side. Strain as much as you can. You'll never see it. But God... He can gather up the Pacific Ocean, put it in a mason jar, and leave it on the shelf. We're to notice its size. So much bigger than us. 
Lastly, he turns our attention to dry land, saying that everything on, on dry land is under the command of God. Of course, he assumes that being people too. And we're supposed to be in awe on how he keeps all of this organized. He's there when the deer gives birth. He hears you when you're working underneath your car and muttering underneath your breath. But he gets away from creation next. Starting in verse 8, he begins to travel down redemptive history. And what we see is that every time that God speaks, something is done. Every time God commands, it happens. This is in contrast to people. People say and plan what they want, but then God can tear it down. They can build up, but eventually it crumbles. But everything God makes, he can only bring down. Verses 12 through 19, he says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed are the people he adopts as his own. And they are blessed because whatever God does, it lasts for generations. A nation might exist for a thousand years, but one day it crumbles. But what God has built, still standing. Heathens may come up with every theory about every possible idea, but that wisdom is going to be found lacking. But God's wisdom will be full, forever true. So we are to wonder at this creation. Wonder at the control he has over it. As he tells it to go here and no further. Or when he tells it to have peace and be still. Be in awe of the fact that his people, his plans are forever and will always be the last standing. Now, one of the things that's often taught in school about men like Kepler and Galileo is that they were persecuted by the church for their scientific discoveries. But that statement actually only tells half the story. You see, as I said, there's a connection between gospel preaching, the Protestant Reformation, and the scientific revolution. Now, I'll try not to get bogged down to details, but here's the idea. Up until the time of Kepler, the primary source of scientific thought was Greek philosophy and teaching. It was what was popular, it was what was accepted, and so the church responded by using it as the primary device by which they would interpret some passages. And so Greek thought said that the earth was the center of the universe, and so the church said, okay, we'll go to the Bible, we'll find verses that will prove that. Well, if you want a, a more uh, current example, we've had this outbreak, I guess you call it flat earthers. Many of them declaring themselves Christians, and all it is is a return to Greek scientific thought. So challenging these scientific models was not just about the the challenging of the considered or what was concluded science at the time. You see, Kepler was challenging the very authority of a very powerful, very politically connected church. So the Reformation happens. And the Bible's brought back to the place of authority. And Kepler's work did bring severe persecution by oh, not only those outside the church, but inside the church. But it's because his works were based on biblical ideas, not Greek ones. You see, the, the Bible's authority was tied hand in hand in what was revived in the Protestant Reformation, and that being that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, you have to understand, biblical Christianity was not responsible for slowing or impeding scientific progress. For the last 400 years, it has been the fuel behind it. And Kepler was driven by thoughts 
like what you find in this psalm. He would call scientists the priests of God's creation. He declared that his genius or anybody else's genius was never about the glory of the minds of men, but was for the discovering and bringing glory to God. Kepler was in awe of what God, he, he wondered at him about through his, his studies in astronomy and math and more. And like a preacher in the pulpit on Sunday, nobody could get him to shut up. Brings me to point number three. We are to commit our hearts to God. We are to commit our hearts to God. So the text opens with this strong command to go and worship. Rejoice in the Lord. Then we're told that if we looked around, we can find every piece of inspiration we would need in order to worship. From creation to redemptive history, what God has done should cause us to awe and wonder. But what is the application of worship? What's the point of it? Well, that's the idea in verses 20 and 22. And the application given to us is that we respond by committing our hearts to him. There's some wonderful pictures here in these last few verses. You see in verse 20, our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. If you want to get an idea of what he's saying here, it'd be the idea of a little boy or little girl who's happily playing with their toys while their father watches over them. They're not worried about riots. They're not worried about political nonsense. They're not worried about the amount of food or toilet paper at Walmart. They they have happily committed themselves to their father's care. And so when you get to Psalm 33 and you see line after line of all the great and wonderful things God has done, it should inspire and should bring about the commitment to do the same thing, to happily commit yourself to your father's care. Over and over again in the Psalms, we are told to eat, we're told to sleep, we're told to, to enjoy life, to sing. Because we live under the watch care of God. You also see this next phrase, verse 21, For our heart shall rejoice in Him, because we have trusted in His holy name. If you want the idea, think of a village with walls, very high, very dense, impenetrable walls. Except those walls aren't intended to protect people. Those walls are intended to protect happiness. Let me maybe explain it this way. Take a moment right now and think of something that makes you happy. No doubt a couple of you are going to turn to your spouse. Maybe a few of you have some wonderful smoked meats waiting at home. You might think of a friendship, maybe your job. Now ask yourself or think about for a moment how all of it could be lost. We've seen over the last few months how quickly stores run out of our favorite foods. We've seen how quickly even the most healthy can find themselves in the hospital. We've seen relationships all under all sorts of pressure begin to crumble. So where can one find happiness that can't be lost? God. The happiness we find in him is surrounded by impenetrable walls. Nothing can take it. And the amazing thing is, is when we find God as our central point of happiness, we find a fuller happiness in all the things I just mentioned, including smoked meats. 
The final verse is a prayer that this commitment of our heart, this verse 22, the prayer is that this commitment of our heart to God would eventually become a hope fulfilled. And that it's a request for grace from the only source of salvation and at the same time a reminder that God sheds His grace and will do so without ever pausing for all of eternity. Now at times in his life, Kepler would have been considered somewhat of a celebrity. During different parts of his life, he was closely associated with several kings and men of considerable riches. But much of his life contained a great deal of difficulty. Over his life, two of his young children died. Due to his faith, he was once removed from being a professor, a job he enjoyed. The same year his wife died, he once again had to abandon his work due to religious persecution. And due to some of his scientific work, even his mother was put on trial for being a witch. In 1625, religious persecution popped its head again, threatened Kepler and his family, and as a result, in his final years of life, he never spent much time in one place. But one thing you note over the course of his life, with every work that he published, you will find him giving credit to God for making the things that he was discovering. One of the quotes that's most often attributed to Kepler is that his scientific works were nothing more than him thinking God's thoughts after him. You see, Kepler not only praised God for all of the things he was finding in the universe, he would praise God and be aware of the fact that it was God who provided and protected him and his family through all the hardships and trials. And so Kepler was fond of saying, let my name perish and let God the Father be elevated. Now it's been 400 years since Kepler died. A lot of people in a lot of countries have given tribute to his work. In fact, in a bit of irony, there are some statues located in the very towns he was run from due to his faith. He's had his life turned into an opera, a novel, a number of short stories. In 2002, Austria commissioned a coin with his face on it. And I've heard in interviews a number of today's greatest scientific minds uh, give, uh, give praise to him as their hero. But often his salvation by faith in Christ, his hymns of praise to God, and all of his essays about why God's creation of an orderly universe led to his discoveries, almost all of that is relegated to footnotes. Rarely. Is it ever shared or ever told that one of the greatest scientific minds of all time loved Jesus more than he loved science? So today, we can answer that question. If you have a chance to share the gospel of Christ, you can do so with the confidence that Christianity is good. And not only is Christianity good, but it has, been, it has brought about many of the good things that people enjoy today. But for those of us who already knew that was true, let us make sure that we obey this command to worship. Make sure we take the time to stop and to pause to awe and wonder. And make sure we commit our hearts to God afresh. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people excited to worship And Lord, give us eyes to see your creation. Give us minds to understand your redemptive work. And lead us, Father, to awe and wonder of you. And I pray, Father, we as your people 
We commit our hearts afresh to you, uh, or commit our hearts to you afresh today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.